So I had to drop a special podcast for the election because to quote my man, Dr. Strange in Avengers, we're in the end game now. Now, as of the taping of this podcast, here's where things stand. We have no idea who the next president is, but here's what I do know. America, we need some therapy. Honestly, we don't even need a president right now. I think America just needs to like not date and just kind of work on ourselves for a while because the word of the week or the word for this bonus podcast is disappointment. Now, even though we don't know exactly who the next president is, let's just say for the sake of what I'm about to say that Joe Biden closes this thing out and wins it. This should be a moment of relief a moment of celebration even because Kamala Harris will be simultaneously the first black woman and first South Asian woman to serve as vice president. But in this moment, I just don't feel any relief. Honestly, I feel heartbroken. I feel worse today than I did in 2016 when Donald Trump was elected to office. Because while I never bought into that economic anxiety bullshit as the reason Trump was elected the first time, I was at least willing to consider that some people, particularly those on the lower rung of the ladder, had been conned. They were bamboozled, led astray. I also understood that there were very strong feelings against Hillary Clinton, even though in the back of my mind, I was thinking, eh, it's the racism they like, eh, it's the misogyny they're kind of holding on to. I was at least willing to somewhat entertain the so-called non-racist reasons for voting for Donald Trump. But this election, no excuses. There was no wiggle room in my mind Because either you're a racist or racism, white supremacy, white nationalism, those things really just don't bother you that much. Those could be the only reasons why this time you were voting for Donald Trump. Now, we've seen four years of this president acting a whole asshole. We have seen him tweet wild, reckless conspiracy theories, retweet people saying white power, encourage violence by white domestic terrorists, weaponize racial fears, insult the military, ruin America's reputation worldwide. We've seen this. And this year alone, we have seen a completely incompetent, irresponsible response to a pandemic that directly contributed to the deaths of over 200,000 people. Actually, it's more closer to 250,000 people. We have seen an economic collapse that has wiped out a number of businesses. People are out of work. Mexico did not pay for that wall. The Affordable Care Act wasn't replaced with a better plan. In fact, the only thing that happened was a more determined effort to take away health care through the court system. We saint it. And yet, as some of the election results poured in, we saw something awfully familiar. White people choosing whiteness, white supremacy, racism and cruelty over country. Trump garnered more votes and more support than he did four years ago. The majority of white support was still there, like a warm blanket that tucked away racism in at night. Matter of fact, the way the results are going, it looks like more white women voted for him this time than last time. Now, I'm old enough to remember how just a few months ago, all these corporations were putting out these pretty little statements about how they stand with black people. White folks were apologizing all over the place and promising to do better. White folks coming to black people asking what can they do, asking us for reading lists, asking us to explain hundreds of years of the real uncut raw version of American history so that they could understand our pain. White people were given the perfect choice. An old ass white dude that, to quote Vince Vaughn and Wedding Crashers, someone who could make them feel dangerous but also safe. As in, he had a black woman on his presidential ticket and talked about race in a safe enough way so that white folks wouldn't be thinking they're about to elect the white Malcolm X. Joe Biden is good and centrist. 
And despite the fact he was mediocre as hell, black folks knew he was someone other white people would vote for. So we pushed his ass to the front of the line. And then came election night. And what happened when it came down to rejecting white supremacy, just like Donald Trump, they just couldn't do it. If Biden does win, of course, the media will look at the fact that Trump also got a little bit more black support this time around than he did the first time that he won Florida in large part because Cubans gave him an overwhelming amount of support. They will study the uptick in support in ethnic groups and treat that shit like the genome project. But that is not the story. The story is that regardless of those small increases in support, the democracy was saved by black people. We had to turn out in record numbers. We had to, in many cases, fight against an extraordinary amount of voter suppression, all to show that this country still had a sliver of decency left in it. We did that. We saved the white folks from themselves again. And while that certainly points to how resilient and patriotic black people are, it's also depressing and maddening. That's why the word of the week is disappointing. Clearly, I have some emotions to work through. Hell, we all do. And because of this unique time, I thought I needed to double up so I could get double the understanding and double the help in breaking down what we have just seen from this election. So today, I don't have just one guest. I have two guests, and they are indeed incredible. The first half, I'm going to spend with Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Brittany is an activist, an author, all around badass She hosts and executive produces a podcast called Undistracted, and I highly suggest you listen to that. And also go to YouTube, peep her TED Talk. She is dropping nuggets. She is dropping jewelry, all that for free. In the second half hour, I'll be joined by Tiffany D. Cross, who wrote a sensational book called Say It Louder, Black Voters, White Narratives, and Saving Our Democracy. You've probably seen Tiff hosting AM Joy on MSNBC. She's savvy, thoughtful, terrific political analyst. And I am convinced she has never had a bad hair day in her life. I am so grateful to be joined by these ladies as we cleanse ourselves of everything we've experienced election night. Uh, We're all in a group chat and we're going to bring that group chat conversation, hopefully to this podcast, break down what we think this election means so far and discuss how the country can heal going forward. All this and more up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. So, uh, Britt, when we did Angela Ryan, Andrew Gillum show on election night, (laughs) um, which was fun, I was struck by your optimism. Honestly, it it, it brought me out of a dark place and I really appreciated it. Um, And I'm looking at something that you tweeted just this morning um, that we're taping this. Uh, You tweeted, no matter the outcome, it is an abject failure to tell the story of this close election without putting the attractiveness of supremacy and the pervasiveness of suppression front and center. Any other story is false and you have to ask yourself why you're not interested in the truth. Prayerfully, the outcome will still be the favorable one. And there have been some serious historic and important victories already, including how people turned out and got creative. But our marching orders are clear. There is much work ahead. Um, How do you continue to have so much faith and so much positivity and optimism, despite the fact that on a daily, if not minute by minute basis, I certainly would like to choke out a huge percentage of this country. Tell me how you do it. Help, help me get to where you are. I mean, I, 
I'm able to get there and it is a journey every day, but I'm able to get there because I'm a student of history. So I like to say that I am a student, a disciple of disciplined hope, that I'm not one of these people out here who's just persistently positive. I do not have a Pollyannish look on the world. I am incredibly realistic and honest about what we are dealing with. And I am thankful when people expand my understanding of just how pervasive injustice is. Because when we expand our understanding of how deep the rot goes, then we can be ever more clear on what the work is. And when we're clear on what the work is, we can win, right? When we don't know what we're fighting against, the fight is much more difficult. When we're clear on what we're fighting, the win is possible. I studied African-American studies in college and, you know, I definitely got the like, well, what you gonna do with that? How you gonna make some money? (laughs) But I'm glad that I chose the thing that mattered to me because what it did was fortify me in the strength of my people. My parents raised me with that. We very much, like I had to do book reports on the autobiography of Frederick Douglass when I was in like the third grade. Like that was the kind of house I grew up in. We watched Henry Hampton's Eyes on the Prize series as a family. Like it was every night there was a different videotape VHS because that's how old I am. Um, So I was raised to orient myself toward understanding the powerful shoulders that I stand on. But I'm glad that I took a scholarly approach to that in college and then on in my own life because it means that I have a constant well of stories to pull from, a constant well of wins to pull from to remind me of what's possible. You can't look at Harriet going back over and over and over again and being a spy in the Civil War and freeing all these people, whether she made it to the $20 bill or not, you can't look at the reality of her triumph and not realize that everyday people are powerful. So I just, I try to speak about myself and my people and my community like the powerful beings that we are. I try to consistently speak that into existence, which is in line with my faith practice. And ultimately, when I start feeling like, damn, are y'all ever going to get it together? I remember that we got us. Um, so that that is genuinely what I return to each and every time. And the good news is that there are people who are making history right now every day who are giving us new stories to tell, who are giving us new triumphs to get excited about, to learn from, to replicate. I look at my friends from Ferguson, people like Kayla Reed and Michelle Higgins, who co-lead Action St. Louis, and after a two and a half year campaign, got a medium security prison called the Workhouse closed in St. Louis, right? It is... It, was, it is likened unto Rikers Island in terms of the uh, awful nature and decrepit nature of the facility. And not only will it be closed, but the community will be deciding where that money goes and how it is directed back to the people. So when I look at wins like that, I'm just reminded that even the most intractable problems are solvable um, and that we can win. And ultimately, I'm going to have my peace <laughs> one way or the other. <laughs> I heard that. So um, I, I think all of us had a bunch of different scenarios in our mind about how election night would, would play out. Uh, in what ways was it exactly what you expected? And in what ways was it totally like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm of two minds about it. Like, I think a, a lot of people are if we're realistic. Everybody wants to get on Twitter and say, oh, I'm completely surprised. Or another set of people want to get on Twitter and say, oh, I cannot believe you're surprised. Let's be honest. There has been a lot of intentional 
very focused organizing by people that I deeply admire and respect, our, our girl Latasha Brown being one of them from Black Voters Matter, they have been organizing to defeat Donald Trump in 2020 since the day he was elected in 2016, right? So I had some, again, disciplined hope, informed hope about uh, a referendum, if not on white supremacy, at least on a quarter of a million people dead from COVID, an economy that is hanging on by a thread, um, a, a proven and consistent and unashamed liar. Like I was hoping that those things would be enough to make people say, okay, enough is enough. And so on the one hand, I was hoping for an early night. I was prayerful for um, us to be able to call it a, a wash really early and go about our business and know that there had been a very clear mandate from the American people. On the other hand, again, as a student of history, White supremacy will fight for itself until its last breath. You don't sign up for a civil war to die. Brother, <laughs> brother next to brother, father next to son, across the American South, unless you are completely committed to abusing Black people as capital, right? Unless you are completely committed to the way of life that white supremacy has afforded you. So when people get desperate, when systems get desperate, they are going to scratch and claw and do whatever they can do. They're going to lie. They're going to steal. They're going to go to the extremes to preserve and consolidate their power. And so on the other hand, I recognize that if history is our teacher, history tells us that hate is going to go out screaming, kicking and clawing. Um, and so we should have always expected that the spirit of white supremacy would be as heavy at the ballot box as it has been on battlefields because folks are desperate to maintain a way of life that has been beneficial to them and they are afraid of what they are going to lose. There are a lot of folks who are afraid that black and brown folks are going to start treating them <laughs> like we've been treated. There are a lot of folks who are afraid that the systems that have consistently upheld their 401ks are going to be decimated. There are, and some of those people are black rappers, which we can get into in a second. <laughs> but, but there are people who are afraid of what justice looks like because they have been surviving so long on injustice. And those folks are always going to be desperate to maintain whatever they got. So... It, it came out how it came out. We're going to see what happens when all the votes are counted. Uh, but ultimately, we've got, like you said in the in the tweet that I that I wrote earlier, we've got work to do. We've got to fight voter suppression once and for all. We have got to strangle the life out of white supremacy. <laughs> like it just it cannot be allowed to breathe and flourish and be platformed and be considered just like some legitimate other side anymore. Um, we've got a lot of work to do on the local, state, and federal level to free our people. So did you learn anything about America uh, during this this process? I know all the votes haven't been counted yet, but but did you learn anything about this country that you didn't know before? I learned, or perhaps was reminded, that when good people of good conscience get together, we really can make things happen. I mean, over 100 million votes were cast. We are potentially looking at a century-long 
high in terms of voter turnout. And I know people were like, please stop texting me. I don't want to get any more phone calls about voting. But that stuff mattered. It mattered that everyday people signed up to phone bank. It mattered that even in a pandemic, everyday people got creative and figured out how to persist through a great challenge to make sure people's voices were heard. It mattered that, you know, people were texting their friends and saying, hey, have you made your plan to vote? If not, I'll help you out. Um, I am reminded that there are, I believe um, that there are uh, more people who are willing to put in the work than there are fewer, or at the very least, that the people who are willing to put in the work can get it done. I don't know if this was a lesson, but I'm, I'm thinking <laughs> critically about how I think, especially in the black community, we have conversations with one another that position all of us to be fighters for our collective liberation instead of just our individual aspirations. It is really easy to choose proximity to whiteness or approval from the system of whiteness as your end goal. And that as long as you got your yacht, as long as you got your deal, as long as you got your support, as long as you got your fans, um, that you're good. And if you could do it, everybody else could do it too. But we know that exceptions do not prove a rule. And um, until we get to the place where Black thriving is the rule and not the exception, then we've all got work to do, including the people who'd much rather just leave us behind. I'm glad you said that last part because um, I got a lot of heat for a tweet that I had, you know, big surprise, when I said that there were a lot of Black men who just wanted better access to the patriarchy. They didn't necessarily want to end it. They just wanted, um, you know, uh, they just wanted to be able to enjoy it more. Okay. Or enjoy it at the same rate that the white men do. And it was many black men that just, just roasted me. Like, I believe you said this. Ah, you and the brothers, you don't like black men, you know, the usual stuff. And then we got ice cube and Lil Wayne. And I'm like, I was trying to tell y'all, but y'all didn't want to listen. <laughs> but okay. And I realized that's not all you know, black men. Um, yeah. So I certainly didn't want to paint it as such. Nevertheless, we see through, they're just a lens to me. Um, yeah. Uh, and I don't know how as black people, because I feel like black women, this is not to say we don't strive for some of the same mm-hmm. patriarchal things. We do. We are not exempt from that. We absolutely do. However, it does seem to be a persistent goal of black men and I think some of it has because of conditioning socializing the images they receive the the level of oppression that they face the internalized racism all those things that you're quite familiar with what's our conversation though with black men after this seeing that there was a rise in support um from them from Trump um I heard many of them say throughout this process that they didn't feel listened to that they don't feel listened to within the Democratic Party so what's our what should our conversation with them be like once all of this is over I actually think there are multiple conversations to have in multiple directions here's what I mean by that if somebody is telling you I don't feel heard even if they're telling you in a way that you don't like or don't agree with you still have to examine whether or not there is validity to them feeling ignored. And the truth is, it's not just black men who have felt ignored by the political power structure in this country. Not just Democrats, not just Republicans, but people in power with wealth, with access, period. Black folks have been saying for a long time, we keep giving to you, what are you giving in return? My hope is that 
especially given the fact that it was black folks, black organizers, brown organizers, uh, immigrant organizers that really made history in some places. I mean, hello, Arizona, right? Um, my hope is that the a, a new Democratic Party in particular, as it begins to be more and more populated with younger organizers, with more progressive organizers, that the party starts to invest in Black people 365, 24-7. Because anything less is only going to result in worse outcomes or worse potential outcomes than what we were potentially facing this time around, right? So there's a there's a conversation that has to be pointed to the Democratic Party. There's a conversation that has to be pointed toward any of us with privilege, because to your point, we both internalize our own oppression and we seek to kind of give ourselves a boost by pushing other people down. And if we benefit from any kind of privilege, the temptation for us is to separate ourselves from more marginalized people so that we can hold on to the tiny bit of power that that privilege gives gives us access to. The example that I like to use all the time um, is actually about cis Black women and trans Black women. So I did Angelica Ross's YouTube show. I am such a huge fan of hers. I think she is brilliant and she is as powerful off screen as she is on. And she put out a clip from the show where we were talking about why it feels like some black cis women, and I say some, just like you said, some black men, why some black cis women seem to feel so threatened when issues facing black trans women are put on the table for us to solve. So she put out the the video and all of a sudden I had other black cis women in my mentions literally telling me that I was a misogynist, that I was committing misogynoir against other black women, like I'm not a black woman, simply for saying black trans women are also our sisters and they deserve freedom just as much as we do. But what happens is we treat power like a finite resource. Like I taught on this at Harvard because it is uh, an element of white dominant culture. This idea that there is only so much power to go around. And so once you get a little bit of it, you grab hold to it because that is what you should be aspiring to in life. So if you're cis, you hold on to the the social power that being cis has, and you decide that you want to hoard that power instead of share that power with other marginalized people who share your identity. It becomes addictive in that way. Instead of thinking of power as finite, we should be thinking of power as abundant. That actually when black cis women, or when black trans women are more free, black cis women are more free too. That when black women are more free, black men are more free too. That when black Muslims are more free, black Christian folks are more free. Wherever we hold power and privilege, it is our responsibility to examine and interrogate the times that we spend that privilege for the sake of freedom or the times that we hoard that privilege for the sake of ourselves. It has to be a constant exercise and choice to do the former and not the latter because it can be very seductive to keep choosing your privilege at the sake of your people. If we're alive and have breath in our bodies, we've got privilege. And then when we are living in a world that continue and, and a country especially that continues to prioritize certain identities over others, we experience additional privileges. So we got to start focusing on our own work um, and holding one another, giving one another the opportunity while we hold one another to account to say, this is where you're slipping. 
And here's what I expect of you. So come on in so we can do this work together. I'm going to read a tweet um, that somebody actually sent to me. And you tell me whether or not you think there's some truth to this or whether you think it's just bullshit or, you know, however nuanced way you would like to respond. Um, mm -hmm. uh, So the tweet says a lot of black men feel, quote, left behind by Democrats, but not necessarily because Democrats unwillingness to meaningfully connect with their black voter base, but because of what many black men feel as the party moving, quote, to left on women's rights and LGBTQ issues. What do you think of that? I mean, I don't know if the tweeter was saying that that was their opinion, but I I could certainly see a thread of that. I mean, listen, I grew up in the black church. <laughs> <laughs> so As a lot of us have. Right. Yes. So I know what intra-community patriarchy looks like. I know what intra-community homophobia looks like. I know what intra-community transphobia looks like. I know what it looks like when we harm each other because we've internalized our oppression and then transfer it onto somebody else. So I, I don't think that it is totally impossible. I also don't think that it's the only thing at play, right? I think that like most challenges, it is complicated and there's not going to be one single solution, which is why we need to start having the conversation with each other. And perhaps, perhaps, we don't do it all on social media. Like maybe we take it <laughs> out of Clubhouse. Maybe we take it off of Twitter. We should definitely take it off of Facebook because every time I go, every once in a while when I go on there, I'm like, I don't even understand what's happening over here. I'm leaving again. You know, per perhaps we need to be taking these conversations to our Thanksgiving tables, to our deacon board meetings, to our, uh, you know, family Zoom calls and, and begin there. Because when we're having the conversation in public, folks seem to, it, it seems to be harder to actually understand somebody's meaning and see somebody else's humanity while you're discussing it with them. Yeah. And, and I don't, I, I don't want to paint because this often gets attached to our community that the black community is just extraordinarily more homophobic or transphobic than anywhere else or any other communities. And we know that that's not necessarily true. Um, but I did wonder, I mean, I know black men obviously have very specific issues that they need to have addressed. Um, but as black women get more um, clout uh, politically, particularly in the Democratic Party, we're going to, you know, we potentially will have a black woman who is a, who is vice president. Um, I guess there's part of me that doesn't understand why issues that we bring up, such as healthcare, jobs, those are all, I would like to think, issues Black men can relate to. So I, when they feel not heard, I'm like, what is it that you're not being heard about, is what I would like to know, since most of these umbrella issues impact you as well. That's very real. Yeah. Yeah. There's an Aboriginal activist named Lilla Watson who has a quote that I really just guide my life by. She said, if you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come here because you know our fates are bound up with one another, then let us work together. And that kind of value shift for us, that kind of narrative shift for our community is really necessary. I feel very fortunate to have folks in my life who have been doing that work. Like I remember in Ferguson, the number of brothers on the street who were like, "Woo, I really got some internalized patriarchy I need to unlearn because I realized the way that I just talked over you in this meeting, or I realized the way that I moved you to the side in the street when you were the one leading the chant, right? And so I've, I've watched people make the transition and do the work consistently, not to come to some point of arrival, but to begin doing the work that we all have to do. Like I said, when we have privilege, 
um, we found a church, uh, Mount Eden Baptist Church in in uh, Clinton, Maryland, where we're very grateful to go. A male pastor, but a, a woman assistant pastor, um, and a pastor who actually moved on the issue of um, of LGBTQ rights. Uh, so we worked, Reggie and I worked really hard to find a church that was affirming of all God's people. Because I can't say I believe in equity and liberation for LGBTQ folks and then keep putting money into a homophobic offering plate. Like it, it, the two cannot go together. So it took us a while, but we found this church and then we found out that there were more churches like it, right? And that there were more pastors like it. So I actually think that it is possible to transition people and transition ourselves into a place where we see one another's fates as bound up with ours, where we see one another's freedom as um, completely and totally intertwined with ours. Um, that is work I have done. That is work I have been grateful to watch other people do. So I don't think that it is impossible. And I do think that the more we can capture a narrative around uh, around shared power and and shared freedom, the more we can get people to see, ah, yes, when we're talking about child care, that affects me too. When we're talking about elder care, that affects me too. When we're talking about health care, that affects me too. Um, no, that's a beautiful way to put that. Uh, and, you know, sometimes I don't have enough faith in people. See, this is why I need you in my life. <laughs> we balance each other out. Because really- you tell me when you're right? like, nah, girl, I don't actually think we should believe in them. And I tell you, like, <laughs> no, let's, let's keep on pushing. Final question before I let you go. Have you ever considered running for political office? <laughs> Why is this a crazy question? It's not. I have been asked that question before, and I feel a level of gratitude and humility whenever I'm asked that because I, I, I take it as the compliment that it is. Um, the truth is, I don't know. Right. Like I. I'm grateful that people that some people are setting a new blueprint for what running for office looks like because old me was like, I feel like I just found my full throated black girl voice and I'm really not trying to dial it down so somebody can, you know, give me some money or elect me. And then you look at, you know, my play cousin Ayanna Presley and the rest right. of the women from the Bush. squad or Corey Bush, and they're like doing it a different way. And so I'm grateful for the folks who said, not actually, you don't have to dial it down to run. So that is something that makes me think maybe, but it's a big maybe. (laughs) (laughs) And I say that because I actually don't want black people, let me be really clear here, political leadership is critically important. It's never going to not be important. The personal is political. It is the black feminist collectives that taught us that. And, not but, but and, there are lots of ways to effectuate change that all rely on one another. And when we look at how cultural change around marriage equality is what actually pushed President Obama to change his mind and what helped push uh, the Supreme Court to actually enact that, right, alongside the years worth of organizing that happened, that matters. So I'm thinking a lot about how we use media to really empower and enable people to be better, stronger actors for justice from wherever they are. That's why I started Undistracted with the Meteor. Um, I am really focused on culture change and how we actually use all of the ways in which Black people are making the tastes 
to our community's advantage, um, to our uh, uh, collective uh, power. Um, I'm thinking about all of that stuff, right? Like I'm thinking about the Valerie Jarrett's of the world and the Michelle Obama's of the world who never ran for office, but still their imprint on our lives is real and felt and, and positive. So I never say never, <laughs> but I'm hoping that Black people are expansive about how we decide to change the world. Because, yeah, it's political office, but it's a lot of other things, too. And they all need each other. That is true. Um, and I understand it. Like, sometimes it's better to be the king and queen makers as opposed to um, being the person in, in the or seat. Or the funders um, or the supporters or the amplifiers. Or organizers or the amplifiers. Yes, you're right. But I just look at what is happening. I mean, despite the fact that everybody right now is embroiled in PTSD, you look at what's happening in the House of Representatives and it is really encouraging. You know, we have now, um, you know, what, two black gay men that will now be representatives. We have our first trans woman. Like we have uh, the list, like what's happening there is truly exciting. And so it makes me think of somebody like you, like I could see you doing that, you know? So yeah, but I don't want, you know, look, I ain't trying to take you out these streets just yet. <laughs> okay. Can't get out the streets just yet. Let me cook. Let me cook. Yeah, exactly. I'm gonna let you fry. Anyway, thank you so much, Britt, for joining me. I know this is a hectic time. I appreciate you taking the time out um, and look forward to us all unloading on the text thread once this is all. <laughs> yes, indeed. That is where I'll let my F-bombs fly. I can't I can't say all the choice words because my mama be listening, but I can text them. <laughs> All right, coming up next, more Jamel Hill is unbothered. Tiffany D. Cross joins me. Stay tuned. So, Tiff, um, a lot of us are uh, at this point because we don't have a declared winner for the presidency. A lot of there's even though there is this expectation that Joe Biden will win this, there is a huge amount of disappointment. It's almost like he lost. Like that's how people yeah. feel right now. Uh, yep. Can you explain why you think that that feeling, that emotion is, is kind of persistent right now? I think because the battle is so uphill, you know, I think people thought that it was going to be a landslide. It was going to be a blowout. Um, but there are a few of us who are not surprised that there are so many white people in this country who are at least okay with white supremacy, with oppressive behavior, with racist rhetoric and racist policies. And I think that is hard for some people to hear because there are so many folks who bought into this false narrative about who the country is. And so for the past four years, all you've heard is people say, America is better than this, or this is not who we are. And I think there was a group of us, I would include you in this, to say, this is exactly who America is. And every time someone said America's better than this, we were like, bullshit, America is doing exactly what it was designed to do. So I think because people are emotionally caught up in this story, that, oh, this is going to be a rebuke on this president. And it wasn't. We saw the whole narrative that, you know, white suburban women are fleeing the Republican Party. I ain't never think that, number one. And number two, I ain't never putting my faith in that demographic to save democracy. We saw the Lincoln Project, you know, try to erode 
all the things that uh, the Republican Party that they actually helped contribute to, quite honestly. And they got all this like wonderful treatment from the media. Um, and they didn't really make that big a difference. That's no shade to them, but it's like, yeah, the monster that you created has destroyed you, has eaten you alive. Um, meanwhile, you have folks like Latasha Brown, who I know you know, who's been on the ground, and she ain't getting that Lincoln Project treatment. 60 Minutes ain't doing no profile on her. So I think people just feel like, damn, we are still here. After all this time, after everything they've seen, people will put white supremacy over their own health, over their own patriotism, over their own feigned values, whatever people purport those to be. So I will say I'm not, um, I care about the results. Uh, and I am not surprised at how the country reacted. The only disappointment I would say I have is that more people are not participating in the democratic process. Because even though we had high turnout, there's still a whole lot of people in this country who just don't vote. So I, I would say this, even though I'm not necessarily surprised, it doesn't stop the disappointment because just putting the racism part aside, just putting that part aside, because it unfortunately has turned into a debate in this country. You would think 240,000 people being dead would be, yes, that's the one people, right? That would be the one that's time for you to abandon this shit show. And yeah. that wasn't enough. And I'm like, I, I literally, I, I, I'm fresh out of fucks. I don't know what to say. Yeah. <laughs> I just, yeah. I mean, you had folks who look like us out there dying for this president. You had Herman Cain out there doing COVID selfies at the super spreader rally and God rest his soul. He's no longer with us. So, so yeah, I, I guess on some level, I, I mean, I, I definitely see your point that you would think at least you would prioritize your own life, but Donald Trump has made science the enemy. And so if people are willfully ignorant to defy biology and science, because that somehow gets caught up in the liberal media trying to control us. And if the only, you're only watching propaganda TV and Fox News all day, I mean, I could see how people, particularly the demographic that overwhelmingly supports him, has this inflated uh, sense of invincibility, you know? <laughs> Like, I, I won't die because I'm a supreme being. And the second they figured out, oh, this shit disproportionately affects black and brown people. Oh, we good. <laughs> like, let's go. Let's open up. And they steady, steadily dying, too. So it's a sad situation. But let's hope this all prevails to our favor. Yeah, let's hope we have an outcome by the time you host um, AM Joy this weekend. Um, yeah. Yes, which is going to be terrific. And one of the things I noticed you tweeted was about how you were going to take uh, a look at, at Latinx voters um, and a look at Florida. And I don't want to group everybody together because it's obviously it's Cubans, it's Venezuelans, Dominicans. Don't want to make that mistake. But nevertheless, Florida is going to be, as Florida always is, a huge story in this election because you had an overwhelming number of Cubans who supported Donald Trump. And people are still trying to connect the dots and say, ah, but what am I not understanding? What am I missing? Um, you know, as somebody who is uh, as politically savvy and has been in politics for a long time, looking at what happened in Florida uh, with Cuban voters, what is your early sort of take on what happened there? So it's actually not surprising, really. I mean, Florida has always been um, a political juggernaut for people who are running for national office. One, two, I began my career covering Bush v. Gore uh, at CNN 20 years ago. Um, feel free to gasp. Like, no way, you were alive 20 years ago? Yes, I was. 
Oh, and here I thought you were like 23. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) So I think the Cuban population um, in Florida has a long memory. You know, um, I think, you know, that words like socialism definitely uh, makes them fearful. And I think the media did a poor job of adopting the labels of the right. Um, But also, let's just talk about it and talk about there is some pro-whiteness and anti-blackness within the Cuban community. Um, And I think that's part of the challenges that we in the media have to do better in disaggregating that data when we're talking about Latinx voters. Because as you said, there are so many people who fall under that umbrella Um, And even within the Cuban community, because there are plenty of Afro-Cubans who feel like, no, I am down with what the Democratic Party said. And there are, you know, Cuban uh, people who are more lean white who give the Afro-Cubans that Heisman treatment. Like, yeah, no, we don't really rock with y'all. So all that's still rooted in colorism and white supremacy. That is a good point to bring up is that as we are going to have this breakdown in discussions um, that people need to be super aware of what those inter-community dynamics look like. Uh, Because a lot of us don't. And you can tell by the media coverage, that's why they've all fallen under the umbrella of just Latino voters. Like, nah, Mexicans don't feel the same as Puerto Ricans and Venezuelans. It's like different hierarchies within it. So as we, uh, you know, you talked about this a moment ago, um, it shouldn't be surprising that there are still a number of white people in this country who do not want to give up whiteness, who chose whiteness, cruel white supremacy, racism over country, essentially. Should the story of this election be that? Or should it be the fact that we also had in a number of marginalized groups, a rising support of Donald Trump? Um, I mean, even black women who are like the most reliable, it was like 4% of black women voted for him the last time is like 8%. So it technically it doubled, but we know, you know what that means. But with black men, which was a big storyline, coming in. We saw a rise in support there. Uh, Certainly a rise in the Latino community, even though Trump always had a bit of a weird stranglehold there. So which one of these stories do you feel like tells the is the more important story to tell about this election. So I will always, till my dying breath, uh, refuse to lay the fall of this democracy at the foot of people of color. Um, It's just white people were very excited about this president. Um, The white women who were allegedly fleeing, they were very excited. And so that is the story we should focus on Um, because black folks did not elect Donald Trump president nor did Latino voters elect this man president. Now, I think these are both discussions worth having, but the priority is the white supremacy because that casts a dark shadow over so many areas of our lives. But let me get into um, the rise in support among black folks. And I'll focus on black men because I thought I discussed this the last time I hosted uh, AM Joy. I showed your tweet that you said, you know, some black men are more interested in parts benefiting from the patriarchy than dismantling it. And I think, yes, that is a legitimate point to make when we think of sexism we often think of it through the lens of white folks um but there's a lot of sexism that exists among black men and there was a time and you also uh, tweeted uh, about Shaq when he came out and said that he voted for the first time and I really appreciated what you said then like we can't shame people like I get that everybody's like damn brother Obama ain't make you want to vote <laughs> like you just did this. right like, you didn't even right. vote for the first black president I, I, I understood but I was like you know we need to embrace and find out why and 
do the work there. So, but you were saying. And not shame people, like welcome them into the conversation. And I think for many black men, they have never felt welcomed into this conversation. Black women haven't either, to be clear. But I think for whatever reason, we show up and show out invited or not. You know, we, um, I think even just how we feel, we're voting to save our black men. We're voting to save our black sons. We're voting to save our daughters. We're voting to save our mothers, uh, our parents who we're taking care of. We're voting to save the age. CA, um, the Affordable Care Act, there are so many, and Black women are the number one business owners relative to any other group, including Black men. So I think Black women have so much on the line. Um, and I think, uh, and not to stereotype us, but I do think the way we're wired, the way we feel, you know, the way we love, we vote for the greater good. That's why when we organize, we're not just organizing ourselves, we're organizing community and we're voting in favor of people who may not always equally support our interests, um, you know, including some of those black men in defense of them. And I'm not trying to defend their political outlook, but we cannot hold everybody to the same standard because we were literally beat down and kept out of this process. So some of us are politically inept. You know, some people don't understand politics. I think that's why you have folks like Ice Cube come out like, hey, look what I did. It's never been done before. And anybody with a modicum understanding of politics like my brother, that's been done a lot. And let me show you the right way to do it. Um, so that hubris in black men that I'm going to be the savior. And you know what? Trump is bad, but, you know, I'm mad about Joe Biden and the crime bill and, you know, et cetera. And it's like, I don't want to dismiss those attitudes. But for those of us who are battle tested, who have been in these streets um, and who understand the political game, it's like I get that you want to disrupt the system, but you have to understand it first, infiltrate it second and then blow this bitch up from the inside. Because when you outside doing your own thing, you fucking up the work the rest of us are trying to do out here, you know? So sometimes it's like, sit the fuck down and stay in your lane, you know? Do a fucking NWA reunion album or something, but this is not the move, you know? So even those marginalized people, you know, when the race is that tight, like, yeah, you're fucking up democracy, you know? <laughs> like you are, you are interfering with good work. You might be well-intentioned, but the product ain't it. So I, you know, it's a delicate conversation, Jamel, because I feel like there's like this war, this unspoken war between us. And it's like, I know you love black men. I love black men. We ride for black men. And it's just a strange position we're in now where it feels like for whatever reason, we're on opposite sides of the divide of so much from Kamala's presidency to the discussions about her marriage to our politics to even how we relate to each other. So I don't know what has to change, but I hope something changes. Well, I'm going to, um, I had, uh, Brittany, our girl on. And so we, we talked extensively about this uh, as well. I had her on in the first half hour. I'm going to read a tweet that I read to her and I'd like to get your reaction to if, whether or not you think there's some truth to this. Um, it was a tweet uh, that somebody sent me and here was a tweet. A lot of black men feel quote left behind by Democrats, but not necessarily because of Democrats unwillingness to meaningfully connect with their black voter base, but because of what many black men feel as the party moving quote to left on women's rights and LGBTQ issues. Do you think there's any truth to that? Yes. So I do um, think that there is, a pocket of heterosexual black men who uh, can skew conservative um, and have conservative outlook. Now you can feel however you want to feel about that, 
but we have to at least acknowledge that those men exist and that people are not necessarily speaking to them. I cannot remember how many cable news segments have ever centered black men. We'll go and talk about Joe the plumber. We'll give him their, their cute little colloquialisms. We'll talk about white college educated white men, college educated uh, or, or, or uncollege educated white men. Um, but we don't give that same benefit of disaggregation to black people and especially not black men. So I think that's, my point about them being completely left out of the process. And so a part of this, and I, you know, I'm so, I'm trying to be so careful in how I say this because I just, I don't want black men to think I'm coming for them. I'm not. And I, and as I told Britt, I was like there, this is not to say that black men are homophobic or transphobic like that. I'm, we're not saying that at all, but there has, I mean, clearly in the democratic party and in progressive movements, there certainly has been a centering of, of certain, you know, rights and equalities that has had to take place. So completely understand that. And I, I share in some of that frustration, like I am wholly pissed off when I hear about people who, you know, corporations where you can't wear a black lives matter pin, but you can wear LGBTQ rainbows all day. Like, yeah, I'm, you know, we're not trying to like victimhood compare, but it's like, yes, I I can completely see how people it's not that you're homophobic but it's like damn slim like i come from the enslaved you know like there is a difference in this struggle and the intersectionality of black men and L the lgbtq space is also a conversation we can have and support for trans lives and anti-trans uh movements within the black community all these conversations are necessary to have but i don't think we have those conversations by just you know, shaming and putting down um, the black men who feel that way. I think there does have to be some level of listening and engagement uh, and not just repeatedly beating them down for making these points, particularly when sometimes they may have a legitimate beef that, yes, the Democratic Party leaped over 400 years of oppression to make sure that white gay people felt comfortable with our platform. I got a problem with that. You know, like that is a legitimate beef. It's like, no, there is space for everybody to feel included. Um, and when you feel like the party prioritizes one group over another um, and black folks have to swallow some of this too. Like when the Latino population eclipsed black voters for the first time in 2020, not in terms of actually voting, but in numbers of eligible voters, they eclipse black people. And I think, they're going to be conversations that we have to have about understanding other communities of color, too, because we're the rising majority of this country. We have to figure out how to all live together and understand each other. I know somebody's going to take a piece of this and play it on Fox News or, you know, try to say I said something, you know, homophobic. I, you know, I, I did not. I can guarantee you no one from Fox News is listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to just... Just wildly guess that. Uh, yeah, but I do wonder um, what should the conversation be with black men after this is after this is all over so we can better understand what their concerns are, even though I agree when black women go to the table, we're, we're really fighting for all of us, you know, healthcare, jobs, economy. Those are things that impact black men, too. But um, in figuring out ways that they can be seen. So if you're, you know, Joe Biden and, and you're uh, officially elected um, president, what do you think when he gets into office in the immediate terms? I, don't, I hate to use 100 days because who cares? But just in the immediate as he's beginning to unravel everything that's happening in the, uh, in the last four years, what do you think his priorities should be? Not specific to race, because I think the house is on fire. 
So um, I want his priority to be wrapping his arms around COVID-19 and how we can get these numbers under control first and then saving the Affordable Care Act because that would impact hundreds of millions of people. When it comes to what his priority should be in terms of race, you know, this is going to be one of those things where I think we're going to have a an unusually visible vice president um, should they prevail because there are conversations that we have amongst ourselves that are different. I hear a lot of CEOs, especially lately, and they're like, you know, had a very honest conversation with our black employees about everybody in and we just had a really honest conversation. I'm like, no, you didn't. You think you did, but there was a meeting before the meeting and the meeting after the meeting. <laughs> exactly. <You're> right. <laughs> that was the honest conversation. So I think this is a role where um soon to be Vice President Kamala Harris uh, we'll have to help mend some of these. And it can't just be her alone. You know, like I, I hate to put it on them. I think we do need local community validators to come out and address some of these local issues. And that's a- another point with some of these black men um, and really people, but we're talking about black men. It's not specific to them. But I think because we've been so kept out of the process, a lot of black men um, are many, not the overwhelming majority, because the overwhelming majority are Democratic voters and support the Democratic Party. But there are some who don't understand the difference between state, federal and local government and who's responsible for what. And if you have people like Shaq, who's like, yeah, I've never even voted, then you don't even know who's on the school board or that you can elect your local sheriff, you know, um, or that some judges are elected in certain places. So. I think when we talk about race relations um, and you think about what manifests to black men as being representative of government and more often than not, that is the criminal justice system. It's cops. And it doesn't matter your economic status. It's a cop that could pull you over for anything. It's the courts that see you as uh, a threat um, or that you get needlessly ensnared in the criminal justice system in an unfair way for for decades. And so I can see through that lens how people feel so disconnected. So, you know, we can't pick one thing, like the easy answer is like reparations, that's to be the priority. You know, like that's, it gets too complicated. There are actual systems at play that um, the Trump administration eroded. You know, black men out here like, what did Obama do for us? I'm like, damn, how much time you got? Because it was a whole lot of things. Dude, if somebody else said that, it was like it went from, Ooh. yeah, Obama to, he didn't do anything. I was like, have y'all read anything? Good Lord. Have right. You, have you picked up a book or have you picked up an article? Because I could literally name a bunch of things that he did specifically for you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So, And the Trump administration eroded, particularly at the DLJ, the yes. Department of Justice. Correct. I mean, they remade the Justice Department. So that, you know, Senator Harris with a great uh, legal background, I think she can certainly... Um, just tackle what Bill Barr did there and reimagine, I would just invite everybody, but particularly black people and black men who might be listening to this to radically reimagine your government and how this government can serve you um, and how we can uh, coexist here. And if you look at it from that extent, you have a sense of agency in yourself and you have input in what, and in, in the shape that this country takes then maybe we wouldn't be operating from a space of bitterness or petulance by saying, if y'all don't want me, I'm taking my ball and I'm going over to play with Trump. Hmm. You know, like that, that's not going to solve anything. So uh, as we, um, you know, as we get closer to having an official, you know, uh, f- officially having a, a new president, um, I wonder what this nation will feel like 
after this takes place because there's been a lot that's happened in the last four years. Um, certainly, there's we are at our most polarizing that we've probably been since the civil rights era, I would imagine. How do we as a country move forward with any sense of togetherness now that, quite frankly, white people have shown their whole ass, right? Like a lot of white people have, not all, but a lot of them truly have. So how can we possibly heal and reconcile this situation that's happened? So I, I may be the wrong person to ask because my ministry is certainly not let's all get along. I hope we can, but I... If you are somebody who not only supports but celebrates my oppression, my general attitude is you can get the fuck on. You know, I'm never having a conversation with you. I'm never speaking to you. you. If you happen to get something out of what I say, great. But my shit ain't ever directed to you. I would rather inform and inspire the people who feel on a basic level that we all deserve equal rights and should be able to live peacefully. So... Given that there was such a large amount of people in this country um, who support this president, I imagine there will be a lot of people thinking, how can we listen to them more? How can we make them feel more included? And that's great. But I kind of, that offends me, you know, (laughs) it's like, these people are not ignorant, you know? I mean, we want to treat them like, oh, these poor people. And I mean, I don't want to hear shit about white economic anxiety. You know, I don't want to hear anything about their pain, you know? Like, they feel so fucking deprived. And we are deprived, you know? They feel so fucking unsafe and we're getting killed. They feel so ignored. And we just got a voice and just a little bit, just a little bit. Like even our shit can't take up too much space or too much time. So I just, I don't think we, I mean, it's an unrealistic goal, you know, like a lot learned a long time ago. Don't set these unrealistic goals for yourself. Don't say you're going to lose 20 pounds in a month, Tiffany, because then you're going to be pissed at yourself. So this whole notion, like maybe we can all get along. It's like, no, my goal is how can we get these people to shut the fuck up and go sit down somewhere and get these people to have a loud voice and participate in this system at every level? Yeah, I guess I do tend to lean toward that philosophy as well, because it came to a certain point where this idea of trying to appeal to the Trump voter, I was just like, y'all miss me with that shit. Like, and that's not that we can say. I, I don't know. I, I don't know where to go when you literally are bothered by, by my existence. I don't know where we go yes. out of that, right? Like Exactly. I can't meet you in the middle. You know, I don't know how to meet a bigot in the middle. Right. You like, know? What's the middle? Yeah. It's like I don't I if somebody could explain that to me, I'd be more than happy um to have that 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 conversation. Um, but there was a certain energy that I think the silver lining of the last four years, there's been a huge amount of energy. Any concern on your part that once we get over the, okay, we got him out of office, everybody will take a deep breath and the deep breath will unfortunately last. Like, do you think we could keep this energy going of organization, of not feeling complacent, of urgency? Uh, what's your level of optimism there? I, I hope so. Um, I think that's just one of the few areas in life where I'll try to be optimistic uh, about us because I think that people have seen, we gotten a peek into what happens when we are not responsible for our government, you know? Um, so for us, uh, people who descend from a people who had no power and we've been fighting for power for centuries, I hope as people have seen the imagery across this country in the past four years of what the working class really looks like, um, and what the people who are on the front lines trying to save this democracy really looks like that they feel inspired to take up 
uh, a piece of that for themselves and be a part of this fight. We always hear people, if I was alive during the civil rights movement, this is what I would do. Whatever you did the past four years, that's that's what you were doing. And that's what you would have been doing back then. You know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> if you were watching Netflix and on doing that hashtag activism and ain't do shit else like that's not really, you know, that's that's not it. So I I, I hope that people um, because we'll have to hold Joe Biden accountable too. we'll have to hold Vice President Harris if, if they prevail accountable. It's our responsibility. And so this fight continues. The fight is not over. Um, we haven't, we barely won the battle and we damn sure ain't won the war. So we'll see. I hope people stick around for the fight. I actually think that's the exciting part. And maybe other people don't see it this way. The exciting part is that we actually are in a position to hold somebody accountable. We weren't, we can't hold Donald Trump accountable, like because he's got way too many enablers. He's got too much power. But considering that, um, as we, a phrase we like to use in my hometown of Detroit, considering Joe Biden and Kamala Harris would, would be getting into office on the humble. Okay. Mm-hmm, exactly. They barely up in that piece. You exactly. know what I'm saying? It's like, we have an opportunity to truly hold their feet to the fire. Now it will be difficult because you're looking at a situation where the Supreme court is a majority conservative, don't have the Senate control, but you know, if I'm Joe Biden, I'm like, oh, y'all let this motherfucker get take have about 9,000 executive exactly. orders. I'm about to executive order up some shit right now, right? I, you know, honestly, I think that's what they have to do. Like, get in there and go hard because then you'll excite people. Like, okay, fine. Y'all did this shit on the campaign trail. It's like, let's appeal to the middle of the road. You know, like, let's see how many red states we can win. And th- uh, that's another reason why people felt like, Y'all not even trying to talk to me, you know, (laughs) like y'all so busy trying to get these suburban women who we understood to mean white women, even though that's not what the suburbs look like. But we knew what y'all meant when you said that. Right. And so people thought, well, damn, y'all ain't even coming after me. So I think now they have to keep in mind we got midterms in two years, you know, like you have to get the Senate you want, because I don't know if Democrats are going to gain control of the Senate. And if you're trying to energize people. I say go ham in this bitch. Like go in there and say statehood for Washington, D.C. That's two extra senators. Puerto Rico, the voters there want it. Statehood for Puerto Rico. Expand the court. Get two more, three more people on the Supreme Court. I mean, just go and wreck shit because they let this dude do that forever. And so if you go in there soft, I just don't think that's a way to inspire people. We can't fight harder than y'all fighting, you know, like help us help you. Yeah. Uh, and I, it would be a mistake because I think they would, you know, as it was, I was concerned that Joe Biden was already talking that we're going to see who we can work with across the aisle. Fuck them. Like they already, they won't work with you. Like they, they already, Thank you. you see how they act a fool with under Obama. So it's just like, no, the answer is fuck them. Okay. Exactly. That's my evite. Even the cabinet members they're talking to. Like, when I was pissed when John Kasich was speaking at the DNC. I'm like, y'all know this dude was a fucking active suppressor of voters in Ohio. He ain't never been called to the carpet for that shit on the network where he appears all the time. So I feel like, why are we extending this dude an olive branch? He was actively trying to erode democracy. And our attitude is, oh, but let's be friends now. I got, I hold grudges, you know, like, I don't forget that shit. I'm still mad about it. I want every black person who helped elect Donald Trump etched in my fucking tombstone, Jamel, because I want to remember those motherfuckers specifically for life. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, some, everybody, some people were like, okay, we're going to let Omarosa back in. Fuck that. Y'all going to let Candace Owens back in? Like, all of them can get the fuck on. That's how I feel for life. And I, I feel like because of the outcome of this election, I think there is this, hopefully there's not this temptation to be naive and thinking that 
the this group um, with these beliefs are going away. They're not. They're just. They're going to truthfully strengthen like gremlins. And so uh, I do. I see some kind of uh, stronger force perhaps coming in four years when they roll out that Ivanka for president. Thanks. That's all I gotta say. When that comes, like remember I told y'all. Be right, exactly. All right, before I get you out of here, Tiff, it's a game I like to play with all my guests. And so I know that you, you know, you don't like for opinions, so I, I know you're gonna just kill this. Uh it's a game I call This or That. And I'm gonna give you two choices. You gotta pick one. Real simple. All right, first up. Jagged Edge or 112? 112, ATL, baby. I know. Look, these are, I'll just say these are Atlanta-specific questions. Okay. Thank you. Okay. All right. uh, Miss Jackson or Elevators? Miss Jackson. (laughs) Cornbread or Biscuits? Biscuits, definitely. (laughs) Can you make biscuits? I can. Okay. Thank you. I'm open the little tinfoil thing and put them right on the... I no, I can roll some dough. I can make some biscuits. Grits can cook. Girls raised in the South. We oh, cook. Okay. So speaking <laughs> of grits, are you sugar on grits or are you salt on grits? That's so disrespectful. Like salts. Oh Don't nobody put no sugar on grits. Some salt, some pepper, some butter, a little bit of cheddar, some fried fish, fish and grits and all that pimp shit. And you got a good breakfast. <laughs> I knew it. You smoked it. <laughs> That's the only proper way to eat grits. I'm tired of this movement exactly. with this sugar. I'm like, thank who you. raised you? He did that. Yes, did that. <laughs> um, well, Tiff, thank you so much for joining me. And everybody, make sure you pick, uh, pick up Tiff's book. It's called uh, Say It Louder, Black Voters, White Narratives, and Saving Our Democracy. It's a wonderful read. It's a fast read, too, by the way. Um, I was like, I smoked through it like that, and I enjoyed uh, it. Because I know you, I can, like, read it in your voice. So that just made it more... <laughs> That just made it more enjoyable for me personally. Thank you. I love it. And of course, make sure you check out Tiff on AM Joy. Um, so Tiff is getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it. I'm bothered. So sometime during the dark of night on election day, Kanye West conceded the presidential race. (laughs) Uh, He also announced he's running again in 2024. Lucky us. Now, I can stop right there with being bothered by the fact that Kanye was even on the ballot. But fucking I'm bothered that as of the taping of this podcast, 60,000 stupid motherfuckers actually voted for him. In one state, he got more votes than a Green Party candidate. Now, I try not to go in on Kanye because I'm trying desperately to be sensitive to the fact that he may be dealing with some mental health issues. We don't know to what extent, but obviously there's a history there that he's been open about. But he willingly made a mockery of the democratic process during a crucial election for attention, acclaim, boredom. I don't know and I don't care. It's just beyond disappointing to see someone who was once seen as an example of brilliance now reduced to an out-of-touch laughingstock. Maybe worse than the fact that 60,000 morons wasted their ballot by voting for him is that Kanye videoed himself voting for the first time ever. And no surprise, he voted for himself, but he also didn't cast a single vote down ballot. He was basically better off just not even voting. I could do an entire TED talk on how black celebrities have recently used their platforms in the worst ways. Hello, Lil Wayne. But I'm just going to make a vow not to give these folks any more of my attention. 
That's it. I'm done. Because Kanye West is proof that you can be brilliant, but you can also be a damn fool. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Rich Burner is our technical director. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Erica Clark. And project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. Thank you.